there were so many heroes at that time, and we lost some. Mm. Hi, I'm Toby Ellie Osman, founder of Smooth Digital, and this is Tea with Toby, the podcast that shines a light on the care sector and helps businesses, staff, and care workers provide the very best care. The past year has been the most challenging in the history of the care sector. The UK care industry has experienced over 20,000 COVID-related deaths. Dozens of staff have died. Last June alone, nearly all of the COVID-19-related deaths were in care homes. So we decided for season four, we want to shine a spotlight on 2020. We wanted to look at the timeline of events, analyze why 2020 was so difficult, highlight the incredible people who saved care and understand what needs to be done for the care industry going forward. In the upcoming season, we will hear from carers, academics, CEOs, industry leaders and analysts. We will get a first-hand account of life on the front line. We'll review the effectiveness of the government's response and we'll discuss how the care industry has changed by the pandemic, what we can do to protect the sector for 2021. And most importantly, we will hear how the industry stood together in times of illness and social distancing with solidarity and compassion. Please join me in this very special season of Tea with Toby. On this week's Tea with Toby, I'm pleased to be joined by CEO of Age Care Technologies, Professor Ian Philp. Along with being a CEO, Ian is a professor in the care of older people and is an advisor to the World Health Organization. In this episode, Ian explains the true needs of older people and why they are so frequently missed. Ian highlights the single greatest error the UK government made in their coronavirus response. And we discuss what reform the care industry needs in the next 10 years. But first, let's get an insight into Ian's distinguished academic and professional background. Ian, great to have you on the show. Great to be here, Toby. Thank you. Brilliant. So you've got a fantastic resume. Would love for you to just share a little bit of insight to your background um, and your career history for listeners. Yeah, well, um, I sort of got into older people's care as a 19-year-old medical student. Um, and like a lot of people, I, I didn't imagine that would be my career path until you actually start working with older people you don't realize the joys and pleasures of it and I was very lucky to work to have a medical student attachment on a brilliant service for older people where the consultants all had red sports cars and they were on call for GPs who would call in so this old person struggling at home and they would dash out in their sports car take a medical student along with them and we'd go and see old people in their own homes in crisis and help sort them out and it it really inspired me to do geriatrics and as a career in medicine and um, so I chose to do my first job on that particular service and um, I learned to drive the hospital bus, used to take patients out on a Friday night to the pub and understood the value of the the social side to medicine as well as the medical care. Mm. And um, so that that's how I continued. I was just really, really interested uh, in doing things for older people. And I realized that the care system 
wasn't responding to the things that mattered most, you know, to older people. Um, and as I left that first job, uh, the man who inspired me, Jimmy Williamson, Professor Williamson, said that he had described this problem where two-thirds of the things that matter most to older people affecting their health, their independence, their well-being are not reported or are reported too late. And he said, Ian, listen, I've described the problem. I'd like you to solve it. And I embarked then on a 40-year journey to try and tackle the unmet needs of older people. So let's touch on those things that matter most to older people. You mentioned it was... The, the, the things which mattered the most um, that we found through research over many years in many countries, uh, top of the list is loneliness, um, pain, chronic severe pain, and needing help with activities of daily living where older people want not to be a burden to other people. And, and these three things loneliness, pain, and feeling that you're a burden, for many older people, it's worse It's worse than death. Mm. We're living with these problems and the level of suffering that older people experience. Um, and it, it means that, particularly around loneliness during the global pandemic, the isolation that older people are feeling, the lack of contact with family and friends is, is a huge, huge problem. And it's, it's a bigger problem, and I think, than just the mortality rates that we're seeing in older people. And why are those three areas commonly missed? There's lots of reasons for that. First of all, older people falsely assume that there's nothing that can be done. Um, second, older people often sort of to use the cliche don't want to bother the doctor they think that other people might be more deserving um and third um sometimes those of us who are providing care don't realize how much more we could do for older people and there's this false belief that you can't tackle problems uh, such as these and other things that affect older people whereas if you tackle the problem if you nip the problem in the bud you can help help older people stay independent for longer, and you can reduce the the need for sort of crisis care um, by getting on top of problems beforehand. So, <clears throat> when you say this, it reminds me of my um, my dad in law, and he is a very proud man, and there's certain times where he might have an injury. He just wouldn't want to say anything about it. He just wants mm -hmm. to, oh, I'm fine. Oh, I don't need to go to the doctor for this. It's absolutely fine. So people who maybe don't want to be a bother, how can, um, how can people really identify if those people are actually in pain or need the help? Yeah, um, there's a bit about that with your father-in-law where there's there's a sort of protective mechanism that kicks in that if you admit vulnerability mm. you you might fear that your independence might be taken away mm. so that, that, that could be behind it with a lot of old people there's this sort of siege mentality i better not admit to a problem otherwise they're going to put me in a home <laughs> <situation>. <laughs> Um, you know what I mean? But so how do you overcome it? How do you overcome all the barriers? Um, what we found is that it's for the service to reach out to older people 
and to say to older people, whether it's when they're um, just coming to see their doctor or a nurse or they're in a conversation with their care worker, encouraging the conversation, is there anything else that's bothering you at the moment? You know, tell me about what your concerns are. Let's sit down and have a chat about these. Alternatively, and this is what we've done on a systematic basis now with, with tens of thousands of older people throughout the world, uh, more than that, over a million in fact, we've got the health service to write out to older people and say, you know, a lot of old people are sitting in with problems that could be dealt with. Would you like to, to have a, a chat with one of us and just go through some things? And, and we find that there's a really good uptake if older people are just given that permission mm-hmm. to talk about the problems. It's as simple as that, really. Awesome. And how did you, how did your uh, involvement in the World Health Organization start? Um, well, I, when I, I became a professor at the age of 35 in Sheffield, um, and it was the last medical school in England not to have a, a department of care of the elderly. So I wanted to be a bit different um, and decided the best way to go about that would be to try and develop an international presence. So I reached out to the World Health Organization and uh, I'd done some work for them, doing some workshop facilitation. Um, and this was with the European Regional Office anyway. Over many years, on and off, I worked with them. And, and once you get in the know if you're respected, they ask you to come on various groups and committees and so on. So I just built up the relationship. And then, but more recently, um, um, 12 years ago, it's not that recent, but when I stood down from my national role, uh, I was the czar for older people at the Department of Health in England. And I stepped down from that and wanted to reactivate my international work. The, the incoming director of the World Health Organization Program on Aging said, listen, Ian, um, I really want you to take out the work you've been doing in Europe and get it working across the world. So over the next decade, we took our methods out to 50 countries, every WHO region, supporting their policies. And some of the work's now recognized in many of the WHO publications as best practice examples for promoting person-centered care. So I sort of sit as an advisor on and off for various things, and I've done some additional consultancy work for them on some of their programs. Um, And it's been hugely, hugely, hugely rewarding when you see um, so many people around the world finding solutions (laughs) to address older people's needs, everywhere from um, advanced economies like Japan, where they've, um, where the Honda Motor Company, for example, um, every time a car comes off the a new car comes off the production line, it has to be cleaned and valeted. Now they employ people with dementia to do the valeting, and they only employ people with dementia. And it's a way of including older people in the life of society. Or at the other extreme, in rural Uganda. We've worked with volunteers who provide care to older people and go out and educate the villagers in how to care. And we've got this work where people as old as 103 um, are living independently 
in Uganda because of the support they can be provided with to address their problems. So there are these really inspiring stories from around the world. And if you can share and spread best practice, um, you can really accelerate change for the better for older people everywhere. Mm -hmm. So you've got a really interesting perspective and the last 12 months have been crazy. And I'd love to see what it's been like through your lenses. So first question, as an advisor of someone of, um, to the World Health Organization, I'll be interested to know, when was the first time you heard the words COVID-19? Probably not far off anybody else. I mean, we all read about what was going on in, in China. And um, I have colleagues and friends in China who once the world was hearing about this, we all thought this was some funny thing going on in Wuhan province and it was to do with wet markets and it wasn't going to you know, be confined, a bit like the SARS um, epidemic was confined to a small number of East and Southeast Asian countries. That was the assumption in the West. My colleagues in China and my colleagues at World Health Organization were saying, no, this is a lot worse. There's going to be real, real trouble here. And I started telling my friends, and in fact, we went into lockdown a little bit earlier because I heard there was a problem. So, you know, the news was filtering out, but it was the interpretation of what was going on. And people were really scared who, who knew what was going on, either the people who knew what was going on on the ground or the people that were studying the data at World Health Organization. Mm -hmm. What kind of things were the news filtering out? What, what didn't we hear about? People just couldn't believe how bad it could be. I think there was just an assumption. I know the journalists were asking the right questions and so on, but I, I think till it hit this country mm. in the UK as it did, we didn't quite believe what was going on. So the, the, the warning voices were sounding, but they weren't being heard. Mm. And can you share how the perspective of WHO changed between, say, December of 2019 up until the national lockdown in the UK of uh, March 2020. There was a reluctance at the World Health Organization to call the global pandemic. And there was a reluctance to come down hard on China. Um, the context was the, Bush, the um, Trump, I was going to say Bush, I've forgotten about him already, that madman. <laughs> he's gone already. Yep. He's gone already. But, you know, America had withdrawn funding from WHO. The main funder was China. Mm. And the politics of WHO and China were difficult. Mm. Um, so I think at first there was a sort of cautious approach. Let's see how this plays out. Let's make some general principles here. You know, at the same time, China closed down internal travel, but they let... Chinese people travel abroad mm. in the early stages. There was a lot of funny stuff going on. And I think if, with the benefit of hindsight, we just needed to be far, far stronger in the UK at the beginning to say there's huge risk here. Let's just get on top of it early on. But very difficult for until you've actually been through it. Mm. 
be able to respond in that way. And it's a bit like if you're old, uh, Toby, one of the things is you don't, you don't kind of feel it's going to happen to you. You know, getting frail and elderly is something that happens to other people until your first major fall when you lose confidence or until you're struggling with your memory and that sort of thing. And then suddenly it hits you mm. and then you want things done differently. And it was kind of with the epidemic, the pandemic, as it became, until it hit us and we heard of people dying and we saw the numbers, that's when reality dawned and we had to catch up with it. So I want to touch on um, how this affects older people a little bit more in a bit, but when it became evident that this was a pandemic, uh, the pandemic that people have been speaking about for a very long time, how did it actually feel from your perspective? Well, at first I I was more scared. Mm. Um, And then as the treatments, you know, more effective treatments came on, I became a bit less scared than other people because you could see that, um, and this is, this is being fearful for yourself mm. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? and your family. At first it, it looked really, really bad. And I, and I would, I think I thought it was going to be a lot worse than many people thought. Um, and this is what we all thought that we whim through the WHO circles and so on. Um, but as effective treatments came aboard, we realized that this was a manageable disease in people who aren't vulnerable. Mm. In the last um, sort of six to nine months, my attention's turned away from personal risk and safety, which is your first response to, well, how is it affecting older people? Mm. And it's been just the most dreadful thing. Uh, for older people, um, for all sorts of reasons. Can we can we talk about that? How does why is COVID nineteen more harmful for older people? Yeah. So I mean, w- w- we've we've written some educational modules through my company, Age Care Technologies, to help people understand who care for older people, why older people are um, particularly at risk. Um, um, partly is because. Um, there's a decline in the immune system or at least a change in the immune system, which means older people are both more likely to get a serious infection that they can't um, deal with through their own immune system. And partly because the immune system is failing, there's an over-response of the bits that are left, which is what creates this thing called the cytokine storm that can lead to multiple organ failure. Um, and that's more common in older people as well. So you get both an underreaction and an overreaction at the same time that's not helpful to the body. And then many older people have um, underlying medical conditions which put them at greater risk. Uh, they're more likely to get um, thrombotic episodes that causes the strokes and the, the, the disease them, where the blood stops going to the, the distant limbs multiple organ failures and then the nature of the the disease when it affects the lungs um, and it, it primarily starts as a as a respiratory disease with the virus getting into the the upper and then the lower airways is that the the, the breathlessness that it causes and the lack of um, reserve that many older people have to keep their hearts and lungs going 
make it very hard for older people and, and not just make them more likely to get serious disease and or to die, but it, 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 it causes for many older people quite a lot of suffering with the breathlessness. And um, the main way that you can relieve that sensation of breathlessness as though you, you feel that you're drowning is either to um, heavily sedate or put an older person under and put them on a ventilator, which carries its own risks as well, or to suppress the, the breathlessness with drugs like morphine, um, which um, are then associated with um, a greater risk of, of dying. So there's, there's a lot of dilemmas around this. If we're trying to relieve suffering, treat, um, and, and preserve quality of life for the older person, all these things are a problem for older people. Mm. Excuse me. Now, do you think there's been a lack of conversation around the importance of strengthening the immune system, even for sort of younger adults as well? Um, I think the pandemic has brought a lot of questions into the public mind that weren't previously asked. So um, the, the best way to um, enhance your immune system as you get older is through vaccination. And um, one, one of the things I used to do when I was um, the National Older People Czar at the Department of Health was I, I ran the flu campaign for three years for older people. And we were we got the the uptake from about the mid sixties to the mid seventy percentage of the 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 older population, which is the the highest uptake of flu vaccination in the world. Mm. Britain has always been good at vaccination. You know, the country of Jenner and um um, we're, we're the country where um, our public health systems and our primary care system is very well geared up. So it's it's just fantastic to see that um, sort of strength that we've got in this country being mobilised to get the vaccines out now. And that is the thing that protects older people the most. Um, if you're, as your immune system is declining, it's it's stimulating good immune responses. Later on in the show, I asked Professor Ian Philp how lockdown impacted him on a personal level. Ian powerfully articulates his thoughts on death and how COVID is redefining society's perspective on it. And Ian pinpoints the exact moment the public lost faith in the government's guidance. But before that, I wanted to know exactly what was the guidance in the spring of last year and how effective it was in reducing the spread. So let's take it to um, March of 2020. What was your interpretation of the government's guidance then in terms of the, the care sector? Oh, yeah. Okay. So, I mean, this, looking back, may have been the biggest error, which was the discharge of older people from hospital into care homes without testing. Mm. I, I don't think it was done with any sort of, obviously with any bad intent or even foreknowledge about what that was going to do. I th I th there's a general principle that discharge 
to your place of residence from hospital if you're elderly as soon as possible is a good thing to do because the longer you stay in hospital, the more you're at risk of deconditioning, losing the comforts of your home environment, um, losing potential to rehabilitate and picking up infections mm. in hospital. So the, the, the general principle was get people out fast. <clears throat> I don't think people realized what was going to happen. As a, well, I'm sure people didn't realize what was going to happen, which was you brought people from hospital into care homes, some of whom had the coronavirus not known, and that spread. And the, the care homes were places where, you know, an enclosed environment with a turnover of staff, it, it, was an, it was like it was a place where the virus would incubate and spread. And then it had that devastating impact in the homes where the virus came through. So it, it was terrible for the sector. It, 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 it reflected that our system wasn't fully joined up. We, ha we have the care home sector, which it operates under a different... Um, a system of funding from the National Health Service. It's, it's largely independent provision with lots and lots of different providers. It's got good, good trade associations like um, Care England, the National Care Home Associations and other, other, other bodies that, that try and represent the sector, but it's representing a vast, diverse and fragmented sector. And the NHS, um, for all its um, challenges um, can mobilize when it needs to. And it mobilized around a decision to clear beds in order to create space for the anticipated influx of patients with COVID disease. And part of clearing beds was get people back to their care homes. In general, that was a good thing. But at that time, we didn't have the testing. And really, with retrospect, no one should have gone into a care home without a test. And, and the other huge problem at the beginning was the lack of personal protective equipment. And the devastating results of that on the care staff, you know, and the clap for carers was important because people were putting themselves at risk to serve other people at that time. And they did they did that knowing the risk. There were so many heroes at that time and we lost them. Mm. There's the negative impact and there's the learning. And so there's two effects really of the pandemic. One was the negative impact and, um, and the impact was felt at the level of the care workers who had to uh, um, continue to provide cares and in the early days at risk and suffering the trauma of seeing the people they looked after, many of them catching the disease and dying. There was the impact on the care providers running their businesses where they, um, you know, already a business that is works at the margin on the economics, having to cope with um, the additional costs, the, the difficulties with staff turnover and losses and the, the, the loss of their 
they're paying clients as well. So the business model was threatened. But most importantly, well, what was the impact on old people and what was the impact on their families? And, and for me, the impact on old people was, number one, the loss of contact with family members. The, 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 back to this point about loneliness and social isolation, it's so important to old people to remain connected. And the, the converse is true for the family member not being able to visit and spend time with their loved ones. It's terrible impact. Can you talk a little bit more about the psychological impact of isolation of you know the, the old people, older people? Yeah, I, I did a program, helped a program that ITV ran called Only the Lonely that was on a, a few years ago. And it, it um, this was when the, the research evidence was emerging that if you're, if you're 75 years old and you smoke, and you've got good social connections. Um, it's not good to smoke, but your life expectancy is longer than if you're a non-smoking 75-year-old who's got who hasn't got social connection. So social isolation is more lethal than smoking mm. to old people. Um, and so, and and why is it lethal? It's lethal because people lose the will to live. What's the point if you you can't have a meaningful conversation with somebody as a friend or a family member from one week to the next. It's a terrible scourge. It's associated with depression. Uh, it's actually associated with reduced immune, immune, immunity if you measure in the, the immune system in the body. Lonely and isolated people, it's lonely. So it has, has effects on the body. It has effects on the mind. Um, and it's associated with 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 misery. Um, so part of what um, I was involved with more recently with World Health Organization was what, what should be the advice to governments mm. with regard to how we best respond to COVID for older people. And it's basically to say um, three things. Um, one is we need to continue to promote the independence of older people to be able to continue to live in the place of their choice for as long as possible and as high a level of independence as possible because that allows older people to continue to do the things that they want to do. But number two is to maintain their social connections mm -hmm. and their connections with their care providers as well. So, you know, COVID has disrupted the ability for social connection. So how do we overcome that? And how, as we come out of COVID, do we enhance social connection with older people? And then the third big, big message post-COVID that we need to build on is the people that provide care to older people, mainly women, as family members or as care workers, are undervalued, underappreciated, underawarded, and undereducated for the roles that they've got. And to understand older people's needs, to be able to care with compassion, to provide respect for the dignity of older people, to understand the complexity of older people's needs, we need to um, provide education and training for care workers to a higher level than is currently provided. And the best care providers do this anyway. But the economics, again, need to be supported. The governments need to get behind a drive to raise 
the, the, the education training reward for care workers. And I'm, my optimistic view is coming out of the care crisis, we, we, the COVID crisis and its impact on care leading to a care crisis, is that we will appreciate much more the role of caregivers in our society. Mm. So in hindsight, first of all, how would you evaluate the government's guidance that they've given thus far? So it's quite a big question because there's been lots of aspects to this. Um, they, they had a very good early message. Um, they've gone back to it now, haven't yeah. they, in England? Wow. <laughs> it was clear. Yeah. I think the Dominic Cummings story just destroyed it mm. um, because pe people said, oh, well, there's advice for us, there's one rule for us, and there's one rule for them. And so people started making individual decisions. So we say, okay, well, there's the guidance, but in my case, it's really important for me to see my friend this week because I haven't seen her for a while, even though it's against the guidance. Mm. And I think we lost the public trust at that point, the Cummings moment. Um, I think it was disastrous in terms of the nation coming together and working around the uh, what needed to be done and and following, largely following the guidance. I think we've, we've gradually crawled our way back to that position um, and that there's much more of a common spirit again um, about following the guidance. So that, that's just about the messaging <laughs> and whether people trust the message because, you know, public, generally the British public will follow if the message is right and people believe in the messenger. Mm. Um, the second thing is, what, what about the policies and the responses to these? Um, and there's a mixture of culture and personality around this, I think. The, the British culture is quite individualistic, quite anarchic. Mm. Um, we're quite a fun-loving society, and we travel a lot, and we've got global Britain and people coming in and out of Heathrow. So I, I think Britain was culturally not well attuned to dealing with the requirements to shut down in a crisis like this in the way that many South Asian countries are not. They're much more um, authoritarian and paternalistic. And, you know, you follow the rules. We're, we're not, we're, you know, from Monty Python onwards, we've, we've sort of sneered at authority in this country. Um, so we weren't well set for that. But we also, I think, have had leadership that was, that was seeing the upside too much. Mm and not managing the downside. Um, and we also had a, um, a public health system that was very fragmented, um, was, was broken up. Where was the authority sitting? There were so many different agencies and so on. So I think we were caught. We were caught cold at the beginning. Culturally, we weren't attuned to being very compliant at the beginning. Um, but system-wise, we, we didn't have the, the, the really strong and robust national public health system all pulling together. It was fragmented and broken. And we had an over-optimistic leadership that wanted to look at the upside uh, rather than the risks. 
Um, and I think that's these are the many reasons, to, to my mind anyway, um, why um, we've suffered particularly badly. But that's balanced by what's happening now with this very, very strong science, translation of science into practice, system to vaccinate the population. So we're now seeing Britain at its best, I think. And at the beginning of the pandemic, I thought, I think we saw Britain at its worst. During that time, what was the professionally and personally, how did the lockdowns and the pandemic affect you and the work you were doing at Aged Care Technologies? Yeah, I just, um, so I, I founded my company two years ago um, to bring a business model to meeting the global challenges of aging populations. And <clears throat> we were just ready to go to the market um, with our products in March and the market stopped <laughs> responding because people were dealing with the overwhelming crisis. So it was quite challenging for my business. At the same time, excuse me, this is hay fever, not I get very early. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, personally, um, I think I probably had COVID because I've I've got I've now got chronic bronchitis, which I didn't have before, and it started with symptoms before we were tested. And I kind of think I'm I'm lucky that if that's the worst that can happen. That's fine. Mm. Live with that. Um, yeah, but no, we, we personally, I wasn't badly affected, nor my family. Um, I know people who've, who've had tragedy in their lives. Um, Business-wise, it was really, really difficult. So we basically put the business into a different mode of digitizing all of our products, developing our partnerships and our networks to take things to market. And we're ready to go now in the post-COVID world. So I'm very optimistic. Um, and I'm fortunate that I'm able to work from home and I'm fortunate that our business lends itself to digital solutions, which make it much easier to get out there into the world and uh, work with our customers and our partners to try and make sure that we can all deliver compassionate, person-centered care for older people and that we understand what are the needs we're addressing, we respond to them well. And just on what you just mentioned there in terms of, um, I think you said chronic bronchitis, am I right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was actually reading something. So Adam Gordon, who's a professor of care of the old of older people, stated that there's emerging evidence that older people affected with COVID-19 might experience significant disability after the acute phase of the illness has passed. Can you talk to that at all? Yeah, well, I know Adam well, friend and colleague, and he speaks with enormous authority on these matters. Um, the, um, the goals of healthcare for older people are a goal, and, and medical care for older people go beyond treating the illness. There is a phase where you, you treat illness because illness needs to be treated. And, and for older people, the quicker and the better you get in there and, and treat the problem as early as possible, it, you get better outcomes. Mm. But there's a phase beyond the illness where there's the recovery. And a lot of what we do in uh, 
good care for older people is to optimize the recovery after illness. Um, normally, if, if, a, if a, an older, vulnerable older person has an illness like a, a pneumonia or a nasty viral infection um, or has a fall or um, um, other, other um, medical conditions that come on quickly, it normally, once you've treated it, it can take four to six weeks to recover, optimize physical and mental function. So we're well used to this this idea that that it's not just the the what we call the acute phase; it's the post-acute phase that's really important to get people back to a level. What Adam's saying now is that with COVID, there can be a prolonged effect that means that that recovery period might not just be a matter of a few weeks; it could be months, uh, where there's there's disability which needs to be addressed through helping the older person to optimise their level of physical, mental and social functioning. And let's say, for example, there's a um, care home owner who's listening to this now, maybe quite new in their journey, and they've had people who have had COVID uh, as one of their residents. What should they be thinking about once that person has... um, you know, is now well? What should they be thinking about about the recovery of that person? Yeah, well, there's this general principle, and I think most uh, care home providers know this, is about is the use it or lose it philosophy. Mm. Maintain levels of mental activity, maintain levels of physical activity, maintain levels of social interaction. Try and create the environment that does all of these things. Um, and try and do it in such a way that for an individual older person, it's something they'll want to do. Um, there's there's a wonder. So it's it's not actually any different, mm. if you like, in terms of the general approach. It's just 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 as important now, possibly even more important now, given that there might be increased level of impairments resulting from the COVID in in bodily function, like chest on you know, chronic chest disease, such as what I may have. Um, but um, the really good care providers know this. I, I went to one um, years ago that made a really strong impression on me. It was, I think it was the first place that developed the extra care model, which is, um, and this was in Wolverhampton, and I took a government minister to visit the extra care facility in, in, in Wolverhampton. Um, and at the end of the visit, when the minister left with her entourage and others, I just stayed on with one of the oldest residents there who'd shown us around. And she took me into the conservatory and we had a, a cup of tea and a chat. And there was a plaque on the wall with the names of everybody who'd lived there at the end of their lives and actually had died there. Um, so I asked her, um, what she thought about approaching her own death. And it's it's something that I've been encouraged to do from the early start of my career you know, because it's on the mind of many other people. So if they want to talk about it, they can. Anyway, she said to me something that many older people have said before. And then she said something remarkable, which which really was a testament to the place she was in. So so what she said that, that many older people have said to me is that, well, you know, Professor Philip, I'm very old. Um, I know I'm going to die uh, probably quite soon, but I'm not afraid of dying. I, I don't want to suffer. 
I don't want to be a burden. I'm not afraid of dying. Um, but I'm just so pleased that this is the place where I'm going to die because this is a place where dreams come true. Mm. Wow. And that was a place which re recognized that its role was the privilege to provide care for these remarkable people who had had all their amazing individual long lives, who knew that they were going to die quite soon, who weren't afraid of dying, didn't want to suffer, didn't want to be a burden, but nevertheless wanted to pursue things that gave meaning and purpose to their lives, or as she said, made their dreams come true. That was beautiful. That's beautiful. What are your personal thoughts about death and approaching death? Um, personally, um, I've lost um, two friends in the last year of about my age from different illnesses. Um, and you recognize I'm, you know, I'm 62, uh, so I'm young compared to many of the patients I've looked after mm. uh, throughout my career who are often in their 80s and 90s. If I make it that long, I'll be very happy. But the shadow of death hangs over us. And I, and, and I think COVID has COVID's done something to make younger people realize what it's like to be old. Mm. In the, you know, you face the prospect of death. And so, and that can be, it, of course, it, there's an element that's morbid around that mm. by definition, but it's also quite liberating, isn't it? If you know that, and you, you fully recognize in the phrase memento mori, remember that you will die, mm. you recognize that, um, you will therefore want to do things uh, that, um, appreciate the value of the life that you've got. Mm. And, um, and then what you do, what the, the great challenge of, of late life, the great psychological challenge of late life, if you're fortunate enough to, to live into your 70s, 80s and 90s, is that you move from a, a sort of position in life where you're doing things and making a big difference in the world or you're bringing up kids or you're, you know, um, the, what we call sort of generativity, giving out mm. to a more internal process of absorbing inwards a sense of what your life was about and what makes it possible for older people to face death with equanimity is that they feel that they had a life that was worth living. And that's what many older people will say. I don't fear death because I feel I had a good life. I made a difference. I'm happy with the life that I've lived. And therefore, I'm ready to face the end of my life, knowing that, that you know, there was a reason that I lived. And um, so personally, um, I therefore reflect quite a lot now on the life I've had. Um, but more than any time in my life, I appreciate the life that I've got. Mm. Appreciate um, and I think that I share that with many old people. Oh, thanks for sharing that with me. I, you know, I, I resonate with that. Um, I had two members of our extended family pass away due to COVID as well, two uncles. And it wasn't until that happened, it became like super real that, you know, before, you know, we're watching the news every night and seeing those numbers go up and down, 
but it's real and it made you just realize that life is for the living you know you have to live life and be present um previously you know i'm i'm i'm, I'm a workaholic i love working um, but i've got a two-year-old and actually the opportunity that i've been able to really be present lay down roll on the floor with her and laugh and joke and play it's awesome so it, I, I guess um for younger people they have realized that you have to live your life you really do have to live your life so well you toby you've you've, you've been given two great lessons uh, one is the gift of understanding death <laughs> um which makes you appreciate life and the other is the gift of life with your two-year-old absolutely and um, it's, it's what it is to be human, isn't it? Absolutely. So let's let's jump back. We are now in February of 2021. We're recording this. We're in another national lockdown. So this time round, what needs to be done differently? I know we've got the vaccine. Is there anything else we can be doing to protect the lives of people? It's odd because if you're young, the, the impact of the disease is likely to be very low. If you're young and healthy, mm. and you take it down to children, it's you know, less impact than the common cold for most children. Mm. If you're old and you're vulnerable, you're at huge risk. But we don't want to isolate old people from the rest of society either. Mm. Um, so there's a huge dilemma for people working in the care sector, you become the proxy family, don't you, to the, the old people that you care for. And these the, the care extends to love, that you can see that for many care providers. There, there's a loving bond as a practitioner, care worker, loving bond as a supervisor, a manager, as a, as a care provider. Um, so you, from that end, it's about stepping in and ensuring that we can enhance and enrich the lives of the older people we have a privilege to serve. And if we're younger and we're not at personal risk, it's it's understanding and tolerating this period until vaccination has rolled out. So we're all, you know, vaccinated and we're posing less of a risk to other people. I guess the biggest thing we've got to learn right now is patience mm. it will pass but we're not there yet and let's, let's not give up doing the right things now because we will get there but now i think is is still a time of peril mm. february 2021 <laughs> so god what's happened to that year toby so <laughs> lost I know I'm, I'm still getting used to saying 2021. It's uh, I've got 2020. Feels like I haven't lived 2020, but um, yeah, 2021. So I love just to get your perspective on this. Let's fast forward 10 years from now. How ideally would you like to see uh, the care of older people? What do you think is going to happen? Right. Well, three things which I want to make happen mm. by 2030. We've got nine years left. We've lost 2020, the first year of this decade. In the remaining nine years, I want with partners 
to help 100 million older people um, significantly improve their lives by having a conversation with them about what it is they really need and bother them and connect them to resources to meet these needs. And in so doing, add on average an extra year of quality of life for each of them, 100 million older people. Secondly, I'd like 10 million carers of older people to be educated and trained in the essentials of caregiving so that they can deliver a care with compassion and understand complexity in order to meet needs. And third, I want decision makers in policy and in provision of care and in businesses that are developing products and services for older people to really understand what matters to older people and therefore tailor policies, services, and products to meet the things that really matter to older people. And these are the three objectives we've set for Aged Care Technologies, my company, to help achieve over the next decade. And I think it's, I know it's achievable. And I know it would make a difference to lots of older people. And the numbers are huge and a bit mind-boggling. And by the way, we'd save $12 trillion globally if we did just what I've described in terms of reduced costs because of better preventive care. Um, the numbers are huge, but at, at an individual level, I'd just like to see that play out with uh, seeing the difference it's making to some individual lives, because it's through seeing the difference to individuals that you understand the bigger picture. I'm sure there's loads of people who would also like those three objectives to, to come true as well. Where's the best way, way people can reach out to you? Um, either on my website, which has got my, uh, or just to email me, ian at agecaretechnologies.com. The website, if you just plug in Aged Care Technologies, you should find it as well. Best way to reach out, I'm happy to hear from anybody um, who's interested. We want to create, with colleagues and I, we're trying to create a global coalition for compassionate, person-centered care for old people. And I'll work with anybody who wants to, who shares that goal. Beautiful. Ian, thank you so much for your time, your perspective. Really enjoyed our conversation and would also love to have you back in future episodes as well. So thanks a lot, Ian. Thanks so much, Toby. I'll be back to tell you about progress, hopefully reporting progress. I'll hold you for that, buddy. Take care. <laughs> thanks, Toby. Bye. It's so inspiring to listen to Ian's passion for care. And I have so much faith in aged care technology's ability to achieve those ambitious but important goals. Thank you, Professor Phil, for joining me on the podcast today. And I look forward to your report back. Next week on Tea with Toby, I speak with Professor Martin Green, Chief Executive of Care England. Professor Green and I delve into how the focus on the NHS may have negatively affected the care sector. Martin speaks candidly about his horrific experience contracting the virus. And I ask Professor Green how he wants to see the care sector evolve in the next 10 years. See you there. Before we go, there's just a few quick notes. Make sure you subscribe to the Tea with Toby podcast so you automatically get notified about new episodes wherever you listen to podcasts. I want to know more about you and what you all think of the show. So be sure to send me your comments at toby at teawithtoby.com. Please check out our website 
teawithtoby.com where you can find out more about me, Toby, our sponsor, Meet My Brian, and what we do at Smooth Digital. I've started a newsletter that goes straight into your inbox. So do sign up at our website as well at teawithtoby.com. You've been listening to Tea With Toby, the podcast presented by me, Toby Eliosman, and produced by One Fine Play. From One Fine Play, James Bishop is the executive producer. Kazra Feruzia is the audio and visual engineer. Connor Foley is the producer and researcher. Additional creative support from Selena Christophers, Jade Cornish, and Miranda Lopez. This episode was recorded by Connor Foley. Thanks for listening to Tea With Toby.